Praise God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, um, we delight in the body of Christ being together. You remind us uh, in a culture, in a world where so often spirituality is talked about as our personal relationship and it's just about us and God. But that's not biblical. You call us to be together in times like this and smaller times and sometimes just with one other person. But you call us to be together because we hear from you through one another. And we thank you for the opportunities you give us to be the church and all of these even different lessons you're teaching us through Uh, these different brothers and sisters. We thank you for that. And as we go into your word right now, as was echoed by our sister earlier, that we would see uh, the truth of who you are as revealed in your holy scriptures, that really all we need starts right there. So guide us. Holy Spirit, take these words that for some of us are so familiar and and infuse uh, uh, life through those things. And draw us to Jesus through your word. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing in our church through joy and through pain. Draw us closer to you. Thank you for being faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Good words. Thank you for those of you who um, who share those things. And again, I always want to echo because I think sometimes there's this, um, we, we, we have certain things within our souls that whenever we get up to say something, there's, there's a temptation and, and we almost want to take it back and say, why did I just share that? I just revealed myself. I just opened myself up and we don't realize that God is using that in ways that you might not even be aware of right now. And we want to continually encourage that often the way God speaks is through the revealing of our souls to one another. So praise God for all of you who did that. Um, we're doing the last week of this series called Mothers as we're looking at some of the lineage of Jesus Christ as found in the first chapter of Matthew. So we're just going to jump right in. And, and we've been reading this uh, passage from the beginning of Matthew. And we've been adding a little bit each week as we look at a new character. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we'll stop right there. And if, if you're not familiar with this, you'll just continue to read these names. You're like, okay, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. But th- though she's not mentioned by name here, the wife of Uriah, when you look into scriptures, her name is Bathsheba. And, and again, he, the author doesn't mention Bathsheba directly here, but the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. And then a casual reading, again, that might not catch your attention But the fact that they include very specifically the wife of Uriah would make someone who's reading this and hearing this in the original time stop in their tracks. And we're going to look at why. So we're looking at uh, 2 Samuel, and I think the verses come up on the screen as well. We're just going to look at a a few portions of this, the story of of this woman Bathsheba and, and her interactions with the king whose name was David. So let me start in chapter 11, starting verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So we've got this story here of the King David, when he should have been gone, no, when all the other kings go off to war, he's at home. He's just lounging, living life large. He, 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 you know, he's lived a good life. He's well-renowned. He's been victorious. So he's resting, and he happens to see this woman bathing. He's on his roof that he sees this woman bathing. My wife and I, we were talking about this past. She's like, so where was this woman bathing that the king could watch her? I don't know, but he watched her. He saw her. Um, God was giving an opportunity right there. Okay, stop. You see it? And sometimes you just run into stuff that you can't understand. You see it? Now turn and go another way. But he continued with it. Then God gave him another opportunity because he, he found out, uh, yo, who is this woman? She's bathing and she's fine. You know, she, she bathes well. Um, who is this? And they said, oh, is not that the wife of Uriah? She's married. Yo, king, she's married. She got a husband. And, and her husband's Uriah. And, and for us, it helps to know who Uriah is because when David was a fugitive, when David, before he became really, really well settled and king and, and leading his kingdom, he was a fugitive and he had this group of friends who came around him. And I, I long for men like this in our church to rise up around when they're, they're called as mighty men. David describes these mighty men who, who fought for him, who would go through the ends of the earth to get what they could for him, who would defend him at any point. And Uriah was one of his mighty men. So David owed his life to this guy, Uriah. Yet, he hears that this beautiful woman that he is lusting after, her husband, she's got a husband, his name's Uriah. Still, God is giving him another opportunity. Stop! Stop! Yet, he goes through with this. It's just nuts. David sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and though she's married, he covets another man's wife. He knowingly commits adultery with her. And we're not going to read this, but in the next few verses, it describes some of the way he tries to cover up as he finds out he gets word she's pregnant. He tries to, David's slick, right? He tries to get Uriah first to come home and take a little break from the war. And he gets him, he gets him full of a little drink so that he's in good spirits. And he says, go home, go home. And, and he's expecting that he's going to go and do what you would if you go home to your wife. And yet Uriah is such a man of honor. He sleeps out. He, he's not even going to go. He's going to sleep outside on the steps of the, because he's not going to do that. He's like, how could I do that when the rest of the men are out there fighting? No, that, that's horrible. David's like, come on. Man. And, and he, try, he tries in different ways, cover up. And then we read what happens. Starting in verse 11. Uriah said to David, uh, starting in verse 14, actually, sorry. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
David's sin, David's cover-up of sin took him to the point where he said, hey, 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 take this guy, Uriah, put him where you know he's going to be in the fiercest battle and that he would die. And that's what happened to Uriah. He kills, David kills this brave and honorable soldier. And to top it all off, at the end of the chapter, we describe, he, he, he marries Bathsheba. He steals this man's wife. I mean, David, just like, it's like he took the Ten Commandments. He's like, okay, let me choose like half of them that I'm going to break all at one time right now. Just willingly, like blatantly, I'm going to choose like half the commandments and just disobey them. If you heard about this guy on WJZ, you're watching the news at night, you heard about this guy, you heard about the story, you would think that you'd be horrified. You're like, this is the most evil man alive. I can't believe a person would do something like this. I mean, what's happening to people? If you read the story without the knowledge of the rest of the Bible, maybe for some of you, you haven't been in church before and you're hearing the story, you're thinking we're describing one of the most evil men in the Bible. You're thinking we're preaching a sermon about like one of the bad guys, just a horrible guy. Like this is, this has got to be one of God's enemies. But if we read the rest of the Bible, this is one of God's good guys. I mean, a lot of felt has been processed to make little Sunday school characters of this guy, David. He's a, he's a guy, he's, he's a king who has proclaimed God powerfully as he battled with Goliath. This is a man who God himself described as a man after his own heart. He knows God. He loves God. He's not faking it. And we even see after in the next uh, stories, David even repents. He even has his heart transformed. He, he acknowledges he did these horrible things. This is the guy who committed these atrocities. So he's one of God's good guys, but he does some really bad stuff here. And, and this doesn't get talked about too much. But look at the position he put this woman Bathsheba in. We don't, we don't really hear too much about that. Um, some people have said, you know, Bathsheba, she just, she was too passive. And we don't, we don't know. It doesn't describe her motivations. It doesn't describe what, it doesn't describe like, yeah, you know, I wasn't happy with Uriah. That's why I was bathing. And ooh, okay, that, that's a way to get in with David. Yeah, cool. It doesn't describe any of that. We don't know. But, but one thing I do think we can say if we understand, this is not the defender necessarily, but to understand some of the cultural nuances, um, just like today, people, men especially with great power, are able to get away with things that many other people cannot. If you are the king, if you say to a woman, hey, I, I want to be with you, there was not much recourse she had back then. If the king said he wanted something, People would agree. There were issues of gender here, the issues of power. And, and this is some just tragic, sordid, horrible stuff that most people, they'll relegate to that closet where we don't talk about this in polite company. We just don't talk about this kind of stuff. So what the author Matthew, when we go back to that lineage, when we see the description of Jesus' line, what Matthew's doing here is really peculiar as he's listing off the lineage Especially if you recognize that the purpose of that list in Matthew was to tell the Jewish people why Jesus was their Messiah. So Matthew was writing to people of Jewish heritage. His goal in that lineage was to tell people, hey, this is why you know Jesus is your Messiah, your Savior. So pretend, put yourself in that position. Pretend you're a good Jew and you've always studied the history of your faith. And and as the list of names found here in Matthew 1... You first start to hear it. 
there's, there's an in, initial swelling of pride within you because you're hearing about the patriarchs. You're hearing about your heroes. You're, you're, you're hearing about the very father, fathers of faith. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But then a shock comes over your system because you hear this name Tamar. We looked at it a few weeks ago. You're like, Tamar? You, you, you mean that foreign woman who pretended to, to, to be a hooker? To get knocked up with her father-in-law, that Tamar? And then, and then you start to get disgusted. You're like, Rahab? You mean, really, not just a pretend hooker, but a real one? Re- that, that Rahab? Another foreigner? Ruth? I mean, all right, she was honorable, but w- wasn't she a woman? A, a Moabitess? W- why, why would they put her on a holy list like this? And then you get to what we're looking at today. Whoa, 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 hold up. The wife of Uriah? You mean, you mean Bathsheba? That's, that's what you're talking about right now? King David's embarrassing affair, that, that Bathsheba? Out of all the tremendous, honorable things that you could have picked out about David, out of all the things like, like slaying this giant Goliath, defending his people, man after God's own heart, all of the honorable, wonderful things that David did, this is what you include in the lineage? You gotta be kidding me. Because it could have just stopped with David was the father of Solomon. I mean, the author could have just stopped right there and be done with it. But this inclusion by the wife of Uriah is not an editing slip-up. This is not a mistake. This is a shameful part of their history. But as you're listening, as you start to process a little bit, as you start to blow off a little steam and you think about these sordid additions to their heritage... um, some sober reflection would make you really wonder at the ways God works. Some sober just meditating and sitting on this would make you just wonder, man, isn't the way God works unbelievable? Isn't it amazing? Because you start to recognize that over and over, God does not choose people because they are worthy or because they deserve it. In fact, these particular inclusions seem to go to the very extreme to show that is definitely not the case, and it's never been. God has never chosen people because they've obeyed the rules and because they've done good. He's actually gone to the extremes to show, I'm choosing people who no one else would choose. And personally for me, one of the greatest defenses I have for the Word of God, for the Bible... I love how Melissa was talking about we look at this as our strength, our foundation. One of my greatest defenses why I look to the Bible as the authority of God is just its reality. I mean, just its reality, even to really embarrassing extremes. I mean, if I were to write a book where I'm one of the major characters, I would probably try to include the stuff that makes me look really good. You know, that's just me because I'm vain, right? I would try to include stuff that makes me look studly and beastly and tough and honorable and defending the weak and the poor and all the good stuff. Um, I I wouldn't put down like my worst night ever. (laughs) I mean, that's that's what this was for David, right? Like a worst season ever. I wouldn't put that down. Um, I would be fairly intentional to frame things to make me look a certain way. But this book, this book... All of our good guys are bad guys. (laughs) This book, all of our good guys are bad guys. Christianity is not about how you should live your life so God will bless you and take you to heaven. It's it's not. Uh, The point of the Bible is to see that God persistently gives grace to people who don't deserve it, who don't really, shouldn't be receiving it, but God will not give up. 
He just persistently over and over through generation after generation to a rebellious people who hear his word and continue to defy him. All he does is continue to be patient and merciful and give him grace after grace and mercy after mercy. And the story is that ultimately, even the best people cannot kill sin. Ultimately, even the best people in history, in biblical history, they cannot defeat sin because they're a good person. But if they cling to grace until the end, they make it. They will triumph. It's always been about God choosing the undeserving, choosing the wayward, loving the rebellious one, taking people from unsavory families, taking people with sordid histories, taking people who worship foreign gods. He takes all of these people, and there's this one common theme of people who are not of God responding to the grace of God and the mercy of God to become followers of God. That's his story. So I think just some basic applications when we think of all this stuff. One, just we need to come to God honestly. We need to come to God honestly. And and we, we know that famous Christmas song, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. I mean, honestly, if that came across the police wire right now, they would have all for it because that's a stalker. That is, that's like a predator right there. I mean, that, that yeah, I, someone coming down a chimney. I mean, that gets you shot in the city. <laughs> but that's Santa Claus, right? And, and we hear that, and, and it's, it might be a really good song to kind of control your children's behavior. <laughs> Honestly, better be good. Santa's watching. It still works with our kids, right, right now. Um, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. But the thing is, many of us, that's how we believe God operates. He's watching. He knows what you're doing. He's keeping a list. Checking it twice. He's watching you whether you're sleeping or awake or on the computer or with people. He watches you on Friday night. He sees what you did last year. He's keeping a list. He's going over it. But trust me, if God chose us based on who's naughty or nice, we're all in the naughty category. <laughs> if God, yeah, if God, yep. We should, all of us, surrender because if God chose us based on who is naughty or nice, who's obeyed the rules, we have all failed. Because even David in his sin, it doesn't describe him as sinning even against Uriah. It describes him as sinning against the Lord. Ultimately, it's not just people we've hurt. It's God that we've disobeyed. So, church, it means we can stop pretending. Church, we're so good at pretending, right? We're so good at putting on the veneer of what it looks like to be spiritual. We can stop pretending. We can stop trying to act like we're better than we are. We can own our sin. We can take responsibility for our failures. We can stop making excuses. We can stop trying to find people who are worse than us to compare ourselves to. Don't we do that? We try to look for the very worst, but yeah, you know what? I'm not good, but I'm not like him. Oh, man. Praise God for her in the church because she always makes me feel better because her life is a wreck. 
We do that. We try to find people to compare ourselves to. We don't have to do that anymore when we know who God is. We don't have to get defensive when our sin is revealed. So many of us, what happens to tragedy when our sin gets revealed? We just leave. We disappear because we fall into shame and guilt. And we're like, oh no, I'm found out. You know what the gospel says? Is when you're found out, you can really experience the grace of Christ because he loves people who failed. Instead of running away, we run to Christ. And, And instead of running, we can honestly confess that we have fallen short of God. I, I love throughout the scriptures, we have this idea, this theme that God opposes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What that means, God loves broken people. God loves broken people because in Jesus, your sin, if you are in Christ, if you've received Jesus, if you said, my life is no longer my own, I follow Jesus, what that means, your sin can no longer condemn you. You cannot out-sin God. And some of you are professional sinners. You're really good. You're like right up there with me, gold medal sinners. Some of you are really good. Trust me, no matter how good you are at sinning, you cannot out-sin God's grace. As hard as you try. And some of you try real hard. Like last weekend. Some of you try real hard. You cannot out-sin God's grace. He will always win because you clearly see from Scripture that God does not choose people because they deserve it. If so, Jesus has no earthly heritage. Jesus has got no lineage. So as we're honest, there's also a call then, be forgiven and be changed. The gospel is not just, I am who I am, that's all I'll ever be. It's that, you know, some, and that's some, how some of us live. We're like, you know what? This is who I am and that's all I'll ever be. You don't know my family. We come from jacked up stock. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the trauma I've gone through. You don't know the abuse that I've endured. You don't know how difficult it's been. You don't know some of the things that have been done to me and in me. I'm never going to be more than this. What the gospel says is that God accepts us right where we are because of Jesus, but he never intends for us to stay there. That's not our, our, our lot in life. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new life. He will redeem who you are and make something beautiful out of that as much as you've never seen beauty in your life. And for some of us, there are some things in your life that have always brought you shame. A lot of it's tied to family. A lot of it's tied to things you've done. A lot of it's tied to mistakes you've made. A lot of it has to do with things that you really um, just regret And even to this day, you can't experience the fullness of God's forgiveness because you're like, but that. And you've never even shared it with anyone because it's deep within your soul. And God wants to tell you, you know what? Even the things that you feel disqualify you the most, it's not catching me off guard here. I know it. And Christ's grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. And I guess for a particular word for some of us who maybe you've been there, maybe you look at certain situations and say, you know what, um, my parents, they set me on a course that I'm never going to be able to get beyond that. Some bad stuff. Some abuse in my life. Some of us, like, that thing I did 20 years ago, I'm never going to really be able to get beyond that. I know everyone says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. I'm never going to get beyond that. Some of us, relational issues you've had in the past, 
and that's defined who you are. Failures, whether family or romantic, friendships. You said, I'm never going to. Some of us, it's um, professional failure. Some of it's addictions. Whatever it might be. Some of it's crimes we've committed, time we've spent, incarcerated, whatever it might be. Some of us, we've been at those places. And, and if, if, if you struggle and you've been saying, even this is too much for God to work with, your view of God is too small. God loves to work with the stuff that you and I consider lost causes. God loves to astound people. God loves to astound this world and the things that we think are ridiculous that God says, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's easy. I got it. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna to take some work, but we got it. Just trust me. Just trust me. Because God using Bathsheba, God using David and all the rest is his emphatic statement that he gets the final word. God using all of these misfits, God using all of these losers, God using all of these people who've made tremendous life-altering mistakes, it's his emphatic statement, I get the final word. Not all of these things. And I want to stop for a second, and I, I do want to say this. I think the danger of a sermon like this sometimes, as I was thinking about it, is some of us can sit here and believe that a sermon like this, you're like, yeah, go preacher, this is good. Some people really need to hear this because they've been living in sin and they've been broken. Man, preacher, preach, because some people are really hurting. They really need to stop. And we can somehow have the mentality, yeah, this is a sermon for like the quote-unquote bad people. This is the kind of sermon for those who've really made a train wreck of their life. Um, and maybe they've taken a chance to be at church today. So preacher, hit it hard. Come on, get them while they're here. Um, you know, speak to the people who really need Jesus. Don't we use that kind of terminology? Some people really need Jesus. And, and the faithful people, we kind of sit back and say, God, do your work, God. But I think this speaks to every single person, not just the quote-unquote bad people, but maybe even some of the most religious people in a room like this. Because I think, and maybe you're here, I think some of us, some people, we never experience the grace of Jesus because we're too busy thinking we don't need it. And ironically, maybe sadly, some people, they never really experience who Jesus is because they're too busy being good. If you're too busy being good, if your life is all together, if you're a do-gooder and responsible and all that stuff, and you don't really see the sense that I'm fallen and broken, there's going to be no need for the grace of Jesus because you got it all. And that's tragic. Again, remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That you need to understand Jesus didn't come for people who think they've got it all together. The purpose of Jesus is not to come here and give like a slow clap for those who've had a good week. Say, oh yeah, you, you're the reason why we do church so we can celebrate how good. That's not why Jesus came. He came for those who know they're broken and need help. He didn't come for the healed. He came for the sick. And, and I heard something recently that's really been churning in my mind um, this this professor, he was saying something to the idea, man, it's really God's mercy upon us that we cannot read one another's minds. <laughs> what mercy upon us that none of us can read one another's minds. Imagine the chaos. Church would last for like 10 minutes before we'd be like knockout MMA brawl in here. 
I believe that we would be truly horrified if we knew the inner workings of every single person in this room. The people that we've always thought were good and moral and kind and generous, we would be absolutely horrified to see how we judge one another, to see how we look down upon each other, see how racist we are, to see how sexist we are, to see how lustful we are, see how greedy we are, see how dark our hearts can get. We would be absolutely horrified by one another that, of what goes on in the hidden place of our souls. And we would need absolutely no convincing that every single one of us is desperately in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, we'd want to kill each other. <laughs> That's what you think about me? Honestly, I thought we were like best friends. That's what you really think about me? So it's really God's mercy that he doesn't let us know what's going on in each other's minds. But here's the amazing thing. There is someone who knows God. God does know what's going on in every single one of our minds. God does know what's going on in the secret places of our heart. God knows the deepest recesses of shame and guilt and fear and the things that we have worked so hard to try to mask. The things that we have worked so hard to try to cover up by our good deeds, by our church attendance, by our service, by our giving, like all good things. But we're using it in ways that they were not intended to. We're trying to take away our shame, our fear, our guilt by our good acts when that was never the purpose of it. Because the gospel says God does know. God does see. He sees our thoughts along with our behavior. He sees everything about us that no one else does. He sees things about us that would repel every other person in this room. But instead of wrath and judgment that we deserve, he offers us the kindness of his grace instead. That's the marvel of the gospel. Because before he was a man... Before he was born as a man, Jesus' mission was to identify deeply with sinful people by coming in the humble form of a man. That's what we look at at Christmas. Christmas is not just celebrating a little baby, you know, the whole Ricky Bobby thing. I love little baby Jesus. That's not the point of it. (laughs) The the point of Christmas is not Jesus' birth. It's actually his death. I, I, I remember clearly, I heard this a long time ago, they did a survey in Japan, which is not a, many Christians in that nation, they did a survey of what Christmas is, and people said, isn't that the day Jesus died? And they actually had it much more correct than most of us realize. Because yes, he was born into this world, but it's, it was also the first day of his death. Because his whole goal from when he came was to head towards this thing called Calvary, towards a cross, that he would take upon sin, and brokenness and frailty of humankind upon his human form of a man, but he was still fully God. So he never sinned. And we see it in this genealogy where his mothers come from. They come from dubious backgrounds. He didn't come for those who were good. And his constant mission was to speak and preach to those who were not good, but who realized they were bad and in need of help, who were broken and needed fixing who were wounded and needed healing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. (sighs) Guys, do you know what this means? This means Jesus didn't just throw like a life vest out to you and say, come on, here's a life vest, put it on, help yourself and I'll pull you in. He jumped into our muck. The pit that we were in, he didn't just throw a hand out there. Come on up. He jumped in, got us up, 
pushed us up on his shoulders and got us out of there, and he took the stink of what we deserved. That's what it means. The ultimate message of Christmas is not Jesus' birth, but it's the beginning of his mission to die so that a rebellious humanity might be restored and redeemed to life. That's the story available to all of us here. So maybe for some of you, and again, I don't know everyone here, maybe for some of us, our life is that train wreck. Like the very fact that we're sitting in here in church, like this is a huge step for you. Like this is something to celebrate. You're like, wow, I would have never thought I'd be around a whole bunch of these do-gooders. And that's the thing, the way we work, right? We think everyone else in here is like this holy, go- holy moly, like Ned Flanders, like always doing good kind of thing. You're like, I can't believe I'm here. God must be so impressed right now. Maybe for you, you're that train wreck, or maybe you've been Ned Flanders. <laughs> you've always been living a good life on the outside, but you know your soul. You know what goes on inside. The good news is that God knows, and in Jesus, he says, here's a way to truly be cleansed, not just on the outside, but on the inside out. Amen? Close your eyes with me, and let's uh, respond as we sing, as we receive communion. And as we do these things, I want you to respond to the word of the Lord as he's speaking to you. And maybe for some of you, what you do today, the best thing you can do is stop playing. Maybe the best thing some of us in this room can do is stop playing. Stop trying to act like we got it all together. Stop trying to just do enough so people won't, won't be on your back. And to just come before God honest and naked and say, I'm in need of help. I am broken. I'm a sinner. Lord, thank you for showing me through your word. It's not enough for me to try to be good because it's never going to be good enough. I need help. And if that's you, tell Jesus today, save me. Jesus, save me. And you know what the good news is? God is faithful to his promise because you tell some people to save you. They're never going to be able to do it. God is faithful to promise because Jesus has already done that on the cross. So you receive that salvation. You say, Lord, I I want a new life. And if that's you, let us know. Jot it down in your card. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. We'd love to uh, help baptize you and confess new faith in Christ. And for others of us, maybe you're a Christian and you've been doing this thing for a while, but you've fallen into this pattern of living a life where you're doing just enough so no one's going to really bother you. But that's not a life worth living. Uh, It's not for me, at least. I don't know about you. I don't want to just get by. I want to experience the fullness of his grace. And what the fullness of his grace is, is every morning I wake up fully convinced that I am really broken, but so amazed that God's mercy is new even that day. That's gospel. That's good news. And I want you to receive that today as well. So let me pray for us. Lord, help us in this place. Help us. Forgive us that we are people prone to just trying to do good enough on the outside that we look like we've got it together. When on the inside, Lord, we might be crushed in our soul. Thank you that you love people who are crushed in their soul because you love to repair people who are broken. And you remind us through this whole Christmas message, through the scandalous message, you didn't came to tell good people how to be better. You came to tell bad people how you can make us different. So let us receive that today. Help us as a church. We would just be much more honest with you, but also with one another. We can get past this place of trying to play games. And just be honest. Because we know that you're not choosing us because we're good, but because we need help. 
also save some of us in this place, Lord. Restore some of us in this place. Heal some of us, Lord. Some of us have been living in our wounds of our past. Some of us got some deep trauma that we've never been able to get past it. Help us to see that even the hardest things in this world are not beyond your hand. You love things that we consider impossible. So we come to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, yes, to this earth to be born, but really you came to die and to be raised again to life so that we could find new life. We thank you for that. And we celebrate and worship you. So I want to welcome you to come up to the communion table if you're a Christian and take a piece of the wafer. Come up both sides and remember the broken body of Jesus. Dip it in one of the cups right there and, and take it and be reminded of the broken body, the shed blood of Christ. Because this is not about trying to be better. This is about recognizing because we're not better. That's why we need Jesus. So let's remember that. Let's sing. Let's pray. Pray with one another if you can. And let's just make this a time of worship as we respond to the good news of Jesus.